For decades, Bob Reese has been shaping his Mormon experience to find space for his progressive but faithful ideas. A prolific writer and poet, former editor of the Mormon journal, Dialogue, university professor, missionary, and bishop, Reese believes in the truth claims of the LDS Church. But he also believes we share the responsibility to make the church better by speaking up. I am called, as I believe every member is called, to change the church, to make it better than it is, to give people hope that it can be better. In a conversation last year on the podcast, A Thoughtful Faith, Gina Colvin talked with Bob Reese about how he has managed to find meaningful reasons to stay engaged with the religion he loves, in spite of his views on the church's divisive social policies. Stay with us to hear some amazing stories about the decision to publish a controversial essay that influenced the church policy on blacks and the priesthood, about helping a gay man go to the temple, and about submitting to church leadership even when they're wrong. I, I say I distrust two kinds of Mormons, those who only think and those who never think. I'm Paul Malin, and this is The Mormon Alchemist, a podcast that relies on the best content in progressive Mormonism to produce short, shareable episodes. You can find the original three-hour interview and support Gina Colvin's work at athoughtfulfaith.org. We'll join their conversation as Gina asks Bob about the role of the church in his childhood. The first 10 years of my life were really a-religious. My family was not religious at all. I don't remember going to church. That's a long story, but my great-grandfather left the church, joined the reorganized church, and was one of Sidney Rigdon's 12 apostles. At any rate, my father was converted by a miraculous priesthood healing and taught the gospel to me. And as a 10-year-old, I had what uh, it might be known as a shock of recognition. There was something that I absolutely felt was true, that I knew that God loved me. And that was a very important realization for a 10-year-old boy. As a teenager, I was extremely active. I consider myself an Orthodox Mormon in a kind of unorthodox way, if that makes any sense. As Pew Nibley would say, furiously active in the church. And yet I also have been active in the social issues that are at the crux of what it means to be a Christian in the modern world. Um, and that's kind of where I am. So let's just walk back a little bit. What was your experience like at BYU? I didn't uh, consider myself very bright or very capable uh, but at BYU, I was fortunate to have some teachers who really challenged me intellectually and spiritually in ways that I would not have conceived as possible. And I began to be intellectually curious. I began to read and study. I began to take seriously being a student. I loved being in the, the culture of the church as a young man. In many ways, one could argue that the church became a kind of surrogate family for me. It was a safe place, but it was also a nurturing place, but it was also a joyful place. And in many ways, I discovered who I was, and I discovered the unlimited bounds of what I could do if I worked hard enough, and if I, if I had an open heart and an open mind. This really stems from a remarkable patriarchal blessing I received when I was 15. When he laid his hands on my head, he said some truly remarkable things, things which made no sense to me at the time. And he said, seek for the, uh, the higher and finer in thought, in literature, and in music. And in a way, my whole life unfolded from that day, even though I have had no 
conscious awareness of what those words meant. And they, in fact, did not mean much to me because I had no exposure. But I had a, a deep thirst for refinement, for the beautiful in literature. And my patriarchal blessing says, seek for the beautiful in those things. And I can remember at BYU going to the Mazer building where there was what we called the listening library in those days. I just, you know, I, again, all I can say is that something really wonderful happened. I saw the possibilities of the imaginative world. Uh, I was touched deeply by poetry and short stories and plays and was fortunate to be married to one of the really great musicians in the church, who Ruth Stanfield, who opened the, the windows of heaven, really, for me by showing me what was possible for me to feel. I mean, I'm, I have a hard time talking about it because it was such a deeply moving experience to be shown the incredible uh, elevated expressions of the human imagination in mind and heart. And I was just committed to living in that world and to bringing that world as much as possible into the world of faith. So I, I came of age intellectually and spiritually at BYU, and yet I also found that that uh, education in some ways was quite limiting. So when I went to graduate school, I happened to be in what was certainly one of the most liberal and progressive and even radical campuses in the United States, University of Wisconsin. I was still a very conservative Mormon when I went there. I began teaching institute, started the first institute at the university, was uh, again very active in the church. But I began to find some discord between what I was learning and what I was thinking and the polity and politics of uh, my, my religion. I began, I think, at that point to become a more committed Christian and Christianity began to define me probably more than Mormonism did, although I consider myself very much a Latter-day Saint I find myself very ecumenical, I'm very involved in interfaith work, and I find great joy in the multiplicity of belief, while at the same time retaining my deep commitment to Mormonism. So how did that happen? You're in graduate school, and you suddenly find yourself moving from a place of orthodoxy to ecumenicism. How did that happen? Was there something that triggered that? Dialogue was published that year. Uh, what year was that? 1960. I think was the first year Dialogue was published, 62 perhaps, I can't remember exactly. And I remember very clearly, as if it were today, that first issue coming in the mail and sitting down and reading it from cover to cover and having a new excitement about what it meant to be Mormon and having a new hope for what it meant to be an intellectual Mormon. And so, in a way, I suppose that began a kind of journey for me. But I think what also happened is that that was the civil rights, the beginning of the civil rights movement. And I began to have some disquiet in my mind about the way 
blacks were considered and treated in the church. And I began by defending that and then reached a point where I could no longer defend it. And so began to seriously read and study about blacks in the church and looking at the lives of black people and reading and teaching black literature, which was very helpful as I, in my studies, began to be open to that world of imaginative lives, which is possible through poetry and short stories and novels and plays. And so that just began a journey which in some sense has never stopped for me, which is the world beyond the more narrow confines of a particular religion, uh, while at the same time retaining my faith and devotion to that religion. So what you're suggesting then is there was some growing dissonance between your intellectual life and putting, contrasting that with perhaps some experiences within the Mormon context, more specifically the reaction of the, the church to blacks and the priesthood. Yeah, I think that what, I mean, there was never a point during that time when I felt not at home in my own ward in Madison. It was a wonderful ward, but there began just within my own heart and mind to find a discord uh, between the what I'd been taught and I, I, I felt when I first went to the University of Wisconsin that I, I really was obligated to be conservative because, and Republican because coming out of BYU, I thought that was the only acceptable political and social place to be. And so that began a negotiation, uh, which has never ended for me. I think uh, in some sense, I negotiate my faith every week. Uh, and I find that interesting and challenging and dynamic because I can't conceive of a static faith but I can conceive of a faith that is constantly in dialogue with both the intellect and with the spirit and with the wider world. When Bob Reese was just a young man, experiencing art and literature for the first time, he was captivated by our ability to make our world more beautiful through curiosity, imagination, and endless possibilities. In 2015, Gina Colvin asked him how his passion for the arts has impacted his experience as a faithful Latter-day Saint. I find there's nothing that I'm not interested in. Intellectually curious about everything, and that's certainly true in terms of my religion. I'm very interested in everything having to do with Mormonism and having to do with Christianity and having to do with world religions. What do you think, then, the relationship is between... Uh, finding more nuance in your faith and art and literature? Well, that's really a great question, Gina. Uh, Wallace Stevens says, the wonder and mystery of religion as well as art is the revelation of something wholly other by which the inexpressible loneliness of thinking is broken and enriched. I believe that the arts reveal religion and religion reveals art, and when they come together... Uh, in a, a powerful way, it's, it is a very transcendent thing. So there is some conjunction, or can be at least, between the imagination, artistic expression, and deep spiritual uh, experiences. There is, in fact, I think, through both of those channels, we can be led to the holy, uh, to, uh, to a sense of glory, uh, to holiness as a, 
as a temporary state in which when we're in it, we know this is what we were born to be in. In my own mind, I see eventually the Mormon church as uh, moving toward a, a, a higher form of expression, a more elevated form of expression, but while holding on to its uh, its kind of commonness, as it were, in the best sense of that term. There was a flowering. There was a, there was a period of intellectual flowering around the 1950s you know, with T. Eagle Lyon and Lobinian and where there wasn't quite so much resistance to finding nuance and uh, layers of expression that aren't bound down by regimes of certainty. What happened to that? Well, that's a very good question. I think it, to some extent it flowered and then kind of went underground. Um, I think that there was a reaction against that. The, there, was a, there has been a persistent anti-intellectualism in the 20th century, beginning in the kind of mid-20th century of the church. It's always been there, but it was not nearly as prominent. And so I think that people began to feel uh, that one couldn't find these expressions. I think that the you know, what uh, Will Benyon and T. Edgar Lyon and, and others led to was a, a kind of openness. Leonard Arrington was one of those. There began to be that flowering, and I think that in some sense it was unfortunate that it was not really fostered. And I think part of that is that there is a distrust among more conservative communities and uh, and tr- faith traditions of the arts and of literature and of the imagination. And yet I feel that the imagination is maybe... Well, certainly one of the most vital gifts of the Spirit, and it's certainly the great unused gift of the Spirit in Mormonism. But if you look at Scripture, God didn't do anything before first imagining it. Everything is imagined and then brought into being, including us. And so the imagination can be dangerous, but it also can be absolutely wonderful. Mormons are pretty afraid to use their imagination, pretty tame in what they imagine, and yet it seems to me that God is awaiting our more uh, fertile and more imaginative uh, discipleship. What would this church be like if you could change it, if you could have some voice in shaping the church? How would you do that? Maybe somebody signaled an end of imagination in the LDS church. We required us to enter the imagination of somebody else. Yeah, that's, that's a very astute observation. And I think just as there are people in the church who surrender their minds to leaders and surrender their thinking to authority, if this is the end of imagination in the church, it's the end of the church. The church needs imaginative disciples because the discrepancy between the church as it is and the church as it should be is pretty wide right now. Those of us who challenged the church in uh, the civil rights era about blacks and the priesthood uh, were right to have done so. Um, There were people who were excommunicated during that time. There were people who were disciplined during that time. But I, as we look back and see the church's recent admission of the error of uh, that doctrine and that teaching, I think we can be grateful that there were people uh, who were willing to risk um, offending 
the leaders by challenging the thinking. And in many respects, that's the beauty of the church. It takes people. I mean, I think there is a wonderful promise that it does take people and it gives them a community, it gives them a home, and that's why we're bound to it, because we're indebted in some respects to the church, but we ache for it to be a more joyous experience. It's a transformative experience. It's not always joyous because I think imagination and joy go along with each other. They absolutely do, and we don't have nearly much, as much joy as we should have in, in the church. Uh, we can talk about the church at large. We can, do, we can talk about the world church, but the church lives and moves and has its being essentially within a ward, within a stake. But it's always sad. I, I'm very sad by those people who leave the church because while I understand that impulse, and while I've had it myself, heavens knows, heaven knows, where do they go and what do they find? Now, some of them find a faith community elsewhere, and I'm grateful for that. But the, the, worst, the most disturbing statistic I heard recently was that half the people who leave the church no longer consider themselves Christian. And that's tragic to me. Because if you lose Mormonism, I think that's one thing. If you lose Christ, in a way, it seems to me, you lose the world. And it doesn't mean that people who leave the church are unhappy. What, what kind of a monstrous God would make you unhappy if you didn't believe a certain thing? No, I don't believe that. I think it's absolutely possible, and many people do find happiness outside the church. I don't find very many people who talk about joy and holiness and those kind of things when they leave the church. Some do, but most people move into a more secular world and they uh, leave the world of faith. And to me, that's, uh, that's really, really unfortunate. And so, my, so much of my writing and thinking is to try and make a case for staying in spite of all of the problems. And if all of the people who see what's wrong with the church leave, who are going to be the people that change the church? Any member of any religion will tell you if they're vitally engaged in that religion, there is tension. And we can't escape it, and so therefore we should embrace it. I, I say I distrust two kinds of Mormons, those who only think and those who never think. I distrust two kinds of Mormon, those who only feel and those who never feel. It is living the tension. Christ's life is an embracing of tension. Christ's life is an, an embracing of paradox and conundra and enigma. It's trying to make things work that don't seem to work. It's looking for truth where truth normally is not found. It's challenging where people say truth always is. It's, I think it's really telling that when Pilate asked Jesus what is truth, Jesus didn't answer. His silence was an answer to Pilate, and it's an answer to us. He was saying to Pilate, you must decide what's true. And truth is standing right in front of you, Pilate, and you don't even recognize it. And he's saying to us, your responsibility as my disciples is to find out what's true. And what's true may not, may not always be what somebody's telling you it is. It may not always be what the church is telling you it is. This is why I listen to dissident voices. I want to know what, what truth do they have? 
What do they say and what do they see that I should be seeing that maybe I'm not? What can I tell them that I'm seeing that might be helpful to them? You know, I think that's the process. And it's a dynamic one. But it's what faith is. Some people are going to argue the church is as it should be. It's led by a prophet and will roll out the don't steady the ark argument. Mm-hmm. What's your response to that? You know, I said this to the Institute at Berkeley a couple of years ago. I asked them, uh, I said, whose church is this? And they said, it's the Church of Jesus Christ. And I said, and? And they were puzzled. I said, there are two possessives in the name of the church. It's the Church of Jesus Christ. It's also the Church of the Latter-day Saints. It's not the Church of Jesus Christ and the First Presidency, or the Quorum of the Twelve, or the General Authorities, or the Conservatives, or the Liberals, uh, or the Dissidents, or whatever, the Temple Worthy. It is, in fact, the Church of Christ. It's also the Church of every member. And so that means that uh, the Church uh, needs disciples who are willing to, in a sense, challenge the status quo in a loving way, in a respectful way, but nevertheless in an authentic way to say we can do better. I think God is waiting on us in a way to imagine a better church than the one we're in. I think God wants the church to be better than it is. And I'm not talking about people who who want to go in and chain themselves to the chapel door until the bishop does something they think ought to be done, but rather to be there on Sundays, to show up is what faith is about. All of us, I mean, I could create a church of my own that would, I think, be wonderful and that I would be very happy to be in every Sunday, Um, but uh, it wouldn't require of me what the church as it is is. And so I think the prophet would say, share this burden with me. Help me change the church. And you can do that by changing yourself, by changing your family, by helping me as prophet know where the church needs changing. There is a resistance to that, I acknowledge. Not every one at the top is wonderfully open to suggestions, but some are. That's Bob Reese and Gina Colvin, studying the Ark, I guess, on A Thoughtful Faith. A Thoughtful Faith is a podcast and thriving Facebook community of intelligent, thoughtful believers working to maintain a deep connection to Mormonism in spite of its challenging doctrines and policies. Connect with a supportive, progressive community at athoughtfulfaith.org. Before I take you into the next segment, let me ask you something. You know that feeling you get when you're about to share something a little edgy on Facebook? Something that really matters to you, but you think it might be misunderstood by your friends or family? When you listen to this next story, I want you to imagine what it must have felt like for Bob Reese, then the editor of Dialogue, to print Lester Bush's revolutionary essay on race in the LDS Church, even though he knew general authorities were talking about him by name, even though he had been warned it could lead to his excommunication. Think about that. I mean, think about the courage it would take, and then consider the impact it had. Were there any recriminations for being involved in Dialogue at the time? I was surprised when my state president had a conversation with, I think it was Harold B. Lee, who said, Brother Reese is in your stake. It scared me that they even knew who I was. <laughs> I had no idea anybody at that level even knew my name. And uh, he said, uh, you know, tell Brother Reese that uh, um, you know, he should be investing in 
uh, his time and energy in BYU studies. That was the first kind of sense that I had that someone might not approve, although I also knew that, you know, I mean, I was, I was smart enough to know that dialogue was, uh, had a reputation and that some people considered it heretical and not faithful and all of that. And then... Um, Who was paying attention to it? So it's obvious the general, general authorities at that time were paying attention well, to it. Well, you see, one of the decisions we made was to send every general authority a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, probably was a mistake in some ways. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I thought they should be knowing, should be reading what we were doing. And uh, I was still very excited about dialogue and wanted to be part of it. Uh, it just seemed to me to offer so much hope. And I, the things I read in the covers of dialogue, there are a couple of things that became controversial. And the most controversial was Lester Bush's amazingly seminal article on Mormonism's Negro Doctrine, A History. And when that came across my desk as editor, I just said, oh, my gosh, what he has written. It's a and, game changer. Well, it was. A, it, was a, it, was a, it was a changer in so many ways. But what was magnificent about it? It was not polemical. It was dispassionately laying out the whole history. And I got a call from my mentor, and he had heard about this. And he said, Bob, um, I've heard that you're going to be publishing this. He was not pleased I was editor of Dialogue. Uh, he said, and I said, yes. And he said, I don't think it's a wise thing to do. And I said, what do you mean? He said, they do, the, the brethren don't want you to do that. And I said, how do you know? He said, from a close source high up. And I said, well, I said, you know, Lester sent all of his research as well as the manuscript to a couple of general authorities. So they saw it before uh, I even saw it. And uh, I've, I've gotten these three responses that are going to be to it. And he said, it's still a mistake. And I said, well, I assume, I said, I'm doing this in good faith. I'm trying to be responsible. I assume that, uh, that if it's a mistake, they will forgive me. And he said, they won't. How old are you at this point? I'm in my mid, uh, see, I started teaching at UCLA and when I was 30, so 30, 31. So I'm in my mid You're to late young. 30s. Right. Uh, but he, he really suggested that I could be excommunicated for doing this. And I took that very seriously. I mean, I worried about that. I didn't want to be excommunicated. So we, we prayed about it as an editorial board. And we felt it was the only really responsible thing to do because, again, it was not, it was not in your face. It was not polemical. It was just laid the case out, and the case was so clear that we felt morally responsible to publish it. So that issue came out and caused a lot of controversy. There was not nearly as much fallout as one as I thought there might be. I was fortunate to have a really progressive state president, but I was, I was really glad to have people on that board and on the dialogue board who were... Uh, who were good Latter-day Saints, but also willing to face certain risks of being, of being willing to do things that challenged uh, the status quo. Later, President Kimball's grandson said that when President Kimball was wrestling with what to do about the black issue, he had that issue of dialogue all underlined. 
Bob Reese, talking about what happened when he dared to share unpopular ideas about race and the priesthood before the 1978 policy change. This is The Mormon Alchemist. Hi, I'm Stephen Carter, the editor of Sunstone Magazine. Like you, I'm addicted to blogs and podcasts that explore Mormon themes, but I also want to be with people, the kind who are as curious about history, theology, and culture as I am. That's why I've been going to Sunstone Symposiums for more than a decade now. I want to explore new ideas. I want to see Mormonism from other perspectives. And, I'll admit it, I want to have lunch with my Mormon studies heroes. Visit sunstone.org to learn more about our symposiums and magazine. Come join us. It's good to be together. As it turned out, there wasn't any talk of church discipline after Bob Reese published the controversial essay in Dialogue. Years later, he was less fortunate. When he refused to shave his mustache, his stake president released him from the high council. So it was in some ways unexpected when the same stake president called him as bishop of a large Southern California singles ward. So you've been the editor of Dialogue. Mm-hmm. You become involved with Sunstone. Yeah. And then you get a call to be a bishop. I had a very strong premonition I was going to be called, which was kind of interesting. I didn't know it was going to be the singles ward, but I just had the premonition I was going to be called. It was one of the really great experiences of my life. Was uh, that a surprise? Did they say anything to you at that point? Like This, this was an unusual call because it was, you know, this was also the state president in which I had been released from the High Council for not being willing to shave my mustache. <laughs> uh, I had 250 single adults, many of whom were struggling with their faith, many of whom had been in and out uh, of the church. Uh, there were a number of gays, and I immediately decided, you know, this is, this is part of my stewardship is to minister to them. And this is one of the reasons I became very involved and have been for over 30 years in gay and lesbian issues in the church and have written a lot and spoken a lot and have taught a lot about it because of what I learned from those members of my uh, congregation. There were people who came from all over Southern California, outside our stake and inside our stake, to find a place there because they could come and know that I... You know, I was going to be open and welcoming to them. But uh, they still, some of them still, they speak about that time as Camelot. And it was. It was a a very special, sacred time for many of us that we could work out a way to be in the church without surrendering our intellect or our passion or our courage. Mm. At this time, are you, are you still writing about the church? Yes, yes. So I, I'm, I'm a cultural critic in a way. Uh, a lot of what I write about is about those intersections within the culture where there is tension. Uh, and, so uh, during the period of time that you're a bishop uh-huh. and you're still writing, was there any concern raised by your rank and f- the rank and file? There were always people, I think, who felt that I didn't really, I wasn't the right kind of Mormonism, I wasn't the proper kind of Mormon. But there were also a lot of people who were expressing appreciation for the fact that I was giving voice to concerns or issues that they had. You know, I, I have, I'm, a, I'm a person who has lived with 
the tension between uh, within my faith, between uh, the church as it is and the church as it should be, between people who see the church in a narrow way and people who see the church in a more expansive way. And that's inevitable. But I, I love those members of my ward who have never been bothered by any doubt. Uh, but I also love those members of my ward who have left and don't know quite where they are in relation to the church. Uh, and with those people who come to me with, you know, can I talk to you about these things? And I'm, I want to be, I want to be someone that is there on Sundays for the person who has doubts, for the person who uh, is troubled by his or her marriage or whatever that, you know, Rumi says we should listen to the deep ear inside our chests, which is our hearts. And I think we don't often enough listen to people with our hearts. So I want to be one of those people who listens with his heart, no matter where people are, no matter what their issues are. I got a call from a man uh, said, you know, my brother has just moved into your ward and he's dying of AIDS and he is living with his companion and uh, I wonder if you'd go see him. I said, sure. So I went to see Brad Murdoch living with his companion, Patrick. He was just this wonderful, wonderful young man. And I said, um, why don't you come back to church? He said, can I? I said, sure, absolutely. Come to church. And he did, and the congregation was wonderfully welcoming to him. And Ruth invited him to sing in the choir. He had been in the original cast of Saturday's Warriors. He was a very talented young man. So he's coming to church and loving it. And after he's coming to church for three or four months, I say, I said, Brad, have you ever thought about... And I knew he, his time was limited. He would be dead within a year. And I said, have you ever thought about going to the temple? And he said, oh, I thought about it a lot. But he said, I know that's not possible. And I said, maybe it is. I said, I'm going to ask you the questions I would ask you if I were interviewing you, but I don't want you to answer them. I want you to think about them. So he did. And a couple of months later, I called him in. I said, have you been thinking about those questions? And he said... Yes, I'm ready. So I asked him all of the questions. He answered them. I wrote him out a recommend. He sent him to the stake president. The stake president interviewed him and signed the recommend. On a particular day, I think it was a Saturday, uh, we went to the temple. I was his escort. And it was a, and his, his mother was there and some of his siblings were there. It was an absolutely beautiful experience. It was just a very celebratory occasion, one of the, the really dear and sacred experiences of my life. What I didn't know was that the state president had gotten a call that morning from the, the temple president, and the temple president said, I'd just gotten a call from somebody telling me that there's a young man coming to the temple today who does not deserve to be here, is not worthy to be here, who's in fact still living with his homosexual partner. The stake president was a really enlightened stake president. And he said to the, to the temple president, he said, President, he said, this young man has been interviewed by his bishop and by me. And his temple recommend has been signed by both of us. 
and he's worthy to be in the temple today. The, the challenge of being a leader in the church, I think, is that at times you have to act on behalf of the church. Other times you really need to act on behalf of the individual, even when it's in conflict with the church. For the first six months I was a bishop, I worried that I was being inconsistent, and then I started worrying that I would be consistent. Brad and Patrick have made a commitment to be chaste. Brad is dying, the person who loves him most, and who should take care of him and must take care of him is Patrick. So from my point of view, that should happen. You're listening to The Mormon Alchemist. This is Paul Malin. I started this project to help spread the best ideas in progressive Mormonism. You can share your ideas and suggest podcasts for future episodes at mormonalchemist.com. In this episode, Gina Colvin has been talking to Bob Reese about his years of experience as a respectful dissident in the LDS Church. In the early 90s, Bob and his wife, Ruth, were the first missionaries in post-Soviet Lithuania. Tell us about Lithuania and your mission there. Lithuania was a great experience. You know, to be the only members of the church in the entire country, there are very few people who've ever had that experience. Thoreau said that when he built his cabin at Walden Pond, he said he felt like the first spider in a new house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Ruth and I, were we were kind of free to do what we wanted, so we immediately... Uh, we started teaching. We started teaching music history and sacred music, and I started teaching American studies and American literature in the university, making our presence known. As soon as the church was had a, a established, and as soon as um, it was dedicated to the teaching of the gospel by Elder Ballard, we started translating. I mean, it shows you something about the bureaucracy of the church that. They sent us uh, the form for excommunication before the form for baptism, but anyway. <laughs> uh, but it was uh, it was wonderful to see people who, many of whom had been atheists or had been in this wilderness of religion, begin to realize that they were children of God. People who, for the first time in their lives, Saying a hymn. Are you are you still writing for dialogue? Or this is interesting. I was asked by two apostles not to write or publish in dialogue or Sunstone while I was on my mission, and I said okay. So you had this this break, this hiatus. Had this hiatus. They asked me not to, and I said I can do that. Right. Um, if you're a human being, you're not above being hurt in the church. You have to decide whether that hurt is going to drive you away or whether it's going to you know, give you the courage to be stronger. We had a visiting authority, and Ruth had prepared her choir to sing this medley of Latter-day Saint hymns that had been translated into Lithuanian, and she's practicing that, and... The visiting authority is sitting there, and he turns to President Blair and says, what are they singing? And President Blair says, well, this is music. The Sister Reese has gotten translated and is preparing for our district conference. And he said, well, tell her to come here. And she came over, and 
she he said, what's this? She said, well, it's a combination of some some hymns that have been translated into Lithuania. I've kind of put it together as a medley, and it includes one Lithuanian hymn and some LDS hymns that we've translated in Lithuanian. And he said, you're not to sing it. And she said, what do you mean? He said, this is not one of the hymns of Zion. Mm. You're to sing only the hymns of Zion. His wife was embarrassed. Ruth was absolutely nonplussed. She didn't know what to do. And But he said, you will sing, you will not sing this. Mm. And bless her heart, she girded up her loins, so to speak. She went back and said to the choir, we're changing. This was ten minutes before the service is to begin. We're going to sing this song, this hymn instead. And that was Ruth's superior love and grace. Conflict would have been the worst thing mm. for these new members. This was the first district conference ever held right. in, in that city. That she recognized this is deep, deeply hurtful, this man is wrong. But for the sake of the church in Lithuania, for the sake of these good people, I'm not going to make an issue of it. She had also invited this visiting general authority and his wife and President Sister Blair to dinner at our apartment afterwards, in which she had prepared a wonderful meal. She served it, but she couldn't sit down. And the hurt for her was very deep. After nearly four years as a missionary, Bob Reese moved home to Southern California just in time to get tangled up in Proposition 8. As he had decades earlier as the editor of Dialogue, he followed his conscience and chose not to support the church's efforts. This time, it didn't go so well. For the first time, he found himself officially in trouble with his local leaders. One of the good things about the church is that it doesn't change with every wind of doctrine. But one of the critical things is you wish you could change a little bit more quickly with some of the winds of doctrine. I see the church of the future. I, I once wrote a satirical piece that Dialogue didn't accept. But it was written from the point of view of someone looking back at where we are now and saying, oh my gosh, can you really believe what the church was doing at the turn of the 21st century? and say, oh my gosh, you mean that the church was this treating women this way and considered homosexuality this way? And you mean it wasn't until uh, 2013 when the church admitted that it was wrong on the issue of blacks and the priesthood? What took them so long? It feels like a bit of a machine, the church. But it feels like a commercial... Um, an ideological, a corporate machine. Yes, and I can understand both that and why very often we have rage against the machine. Yes. <laughs> um, the, for good or for ill, uh, the brethren move in concert. And we know now that 11 general authorities were ready to give the priesthood to blacks um, but without the 12th one, they didn't do it. And Who was the 12th one? I think it was Harold B. Lee. Oh, right. But, you know, some things that individual general authorities have told me about some of the council of the church make me realize that they're very heated at times and very, you know, I, I have it on fairly good authority that not everyone in the Quorum of the Twelve wanted to 
do support Proposition 8 in California. But Proposition 8 was to give the populace a chance to say yes once and for all marriages between a man and a woman. And So the church was after a yes. The church was, you know, yes on Proposition 8. Uh, the letter from the First Presidency was to ask everyone to do everything they could or to do what they could, and I couldn't. You and others. Me and a lot of other people mm. uh, could not support it in good faith. There was uh, tremendous pressure in the uh, in the church for members of the church to support Proposition 8. A lot of pressure. And it was uncomfortable to be in a place of conflict with the church, but my ultimate responsibility is to my own conscience. And so, uh, so what happened was... Uh, uh, my state president uh, um, felt that I was in opposition to the church. I had worn a, a simple little pin to church, along with a number of other people. The, the Sunday the letter was read, I wore a pin that was kind of a rainbow pin that simply said, all families matter. Just, you know, that was a simple statement of solidarity with all families. Um... So I was called in to the bishop and had my temple recommend rescinded. Um, I was released from the high council. I was silenced. And during that year, I was forbidden from uh, speaking in church, from teaching, from bearing my testimony, from praying in church. Those were hurtful things. I won't deny that. They were hurtful, and they were hurtful to my family. And so this sense, this what happened to you, you process that by saying, actually, the church is bigger than you. Part of what it is interesting, Gina, that one of the things that sitting in church that year did is it made me think about people who don't have a voice. I thought a lot about women in the church. Mm. I thought a lot about other people who don't have a voice, who can't either can't or somehow are limited from expressing themselves. And I realized I had been very privileged. I'd, been, I'd had an opportunity to use my voice in a lot of ways. And so sitting there not using my voice gave me time to reflect on what it's like not to have a voice. And there's also part of me that's pretty stubborn that said I'm not going to give anyone that kind of power over my faith or over my commitment. We can only be responsible ultimately for our own hearts, minds, and spirits. That's what Christ calls us to do. And I feel that if I stand before the Lord and say in the greatest integrity of my heart and soul, this is the position I took, and I'm, I'm willing to risk the consequences. I was when I did that. I was willing to risk the consequences just as I was willing to risk publishing Lester Bush's article in Dialogue. I knew that was a risk, but it was a risk that I was willing to take, just as it was a risk I was willing to take to have a kind of open space for gays and lesbians. Um, so the consequences could have been worse. I could have been excommunicated. That would have been very sad and very tragic for me because I, I really... Uh, value my membership in the church and it's hard 
to love people who mistreat you. It's hard to love people who misunderstand you. But our greatest calling is to make love manifest and to make love visible in the world and to make love happen in this broken church, in this flawed church, in this imperfect church. And love is the ultimate answer. It is in all of its manifestations what we are called to do. has not been easy and I don't think it is easy for people to be willing to challenge the church. I feel very sad when anyone gets excommunicated. It invariably hurts the church. Invariably it hurts the church. Mm. As well as those people. Yeah, because what is the church? The church is all of us. And when any one of us hurts or suffers, the rest of us do. I weep for these good brothers and sisters who often, in the integrity of their hearts and souls, have have tried to make the church better and have been seen as troublemakers or whatever, Uh, have been seen as heretics. Um, Many of them far more faithful than many people who go to church every Sunday. You know, we know that people are just hemorrhaging from the church. Good people, unlike uh, people who've served missions and been married in the temple and given years of service, are teetering. So if you were to, to, to sit down with these people, what would you say to them? I would probably say, first of all, I really understand how you feel and I, I recognize those feelings because I've had them myself. It, it, to leave the church is a choice. But there are people in your congregation who would be blessed if you stay, who need people like you, who see what's wrong, who see the challenges. But there's something so radically wonderful about Mormonism that I feel committed to. It has been an enormous blessing in my life. To be a Latter-day Saint does not mean to be mindless. Now, there's a wonderful ad the Episcopalians have that shows a very well-dressed man who's got tape across his mouth and it says Christ came to take away our sins not our minds I am an intellectually committed Latter-day Saint but I'm also committed to faith and I am I'm I'm willing to I think the tent should be big I think Jesus draws a large circle I think we do too much Um, emotional excommunicating of people. Let people believe in the Book of Mormon as an inspired book and let them believe uh, it was written in the 19th century. That's okay with me. If they are living good Christian lives, if they are devoted to the restoration and other things, 
you know, there, let's don't have these tests of faith. Let's don't have these, uh, you know, there should be very few tests of faith. Even the idea of a testimony, what does that mean? I think if you took, again, a survey of people in any ward saying, define a testimony, it would be a broad range. I think there are general authorities who don't believe everything that every general authority says. I'm sure that's the case. Mm. So let the tent be big. Let love dominate. Let us be gracious in accepting our differences. Let us be generous-hearted to one another. Let us be Christians in Mormonism. Let us really try to let Christianity flower in our hearts and in our congregations. One of the reasons why I am in the church is that sometimes sacred experiences are possible. Not always. Many Sundays, probably not. But if I'm not there, they won't happen for me. If I am there, they may. And I want them to happen. I treasure the sacred. I treasure the holy. I want to be one of the agents that makes holiness possible for other people. Holiness happens outside the church, but sometimes holiness happens in the church, and sometimes we can make it happen. And if we're present, sometimes someone stands up in testimony meeting and says something that cuts through all of the bureaucracy and cuts through all of the reason and cuts through all of the things that we might feel are wrong with the church and touches us at our very center. And that's worth putting up with a lot of boring meetings. It's worth putting up with a lot of crazy bureaucracy. It's worth putting up with a lot of personal hurt, which I have suffered, in order to be there. And part of me also, you know, my ultimate commitment is to Christ. And I say to myself, if he could go and love those people when nobody understood him, when his apostles had no clue of what he was about, and serve them, I can do that. And I can do it gladly, and I can do it for the rest of my life. That's how I feel. That's Bob Reese finishing his interview with Gina Colvin on the A Thoughtful Faith podcast. You'll find hours of thought-provoking content like this at athoughtfulfaith.org. This is Paul Malin. The Mormon Alchemist podcast is kind of a crazy experiment. When I pitched the idea to John DeLynn, I, I needed his permission to use material owned by the Open Stories Foundation. He said, I love the idea, but that sounds like a full-time job. Well, it isn't quite, but it does take a lot of time and energy. This isn't a request for donations. It's more like an invitation for you to tell me if the Mormon Alchemist podcast is worth doing. If it is, if it's useful to you, if it helps the best content in progressive Mormonism find a wider audience, if you have ideas for episodes out there you'd love to hear on The Mormon Alchemist, I'll keep going. So listen to the three episodes I've produced so far. Then stop by mormonalchemist.com or find me on Facebook or Twitter and tell me what you think. If you like the idea as much as I do, I'll crank out fresh Mormon alchemy every month. And if it's just not that interesting to you, 
or if you think it could be a lot better with some changes, I hope you'll tell me that too. Thanks for listening.